As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he may become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be, and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform and therefore... It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. The great theme of chapter 4 is justification. Justification by faith and not works in verses 1 through 8. By grace and not law in verses 9 through 17. By a supernatural power. This is a kind of a resurrection power. Not human effort in verses 18 through 25. And so Paul gives stark and vivid contrasts. Faith and works. Law and grace. Now life and death. And Abraham will serve as a great example of a human being who is saved by faith and justified by faith alone. In the example of Abraham, we're able to glean some significant insights into the faith that justified Abraham. There's a reckoning faith in verse 17. And then Paul describes the basis of faith in verse 18. The consideration of faith in verses 19 through 20. The persuasion of faith in verse 21. The effects of faith in verses 22 through 24. And then the justification of faith in verse 25. Remember, 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 everyone has faith. Even the atheist. Remember, the atheist faith is a trust and a confidence. For the atheist, it's a trust and a confidence in himself or herself, in their own reasoning power, in their own perceptual power. The unbeliever and the make-believer can say with confidence, well, I believe there's a God. I believe there's a God who is kind and loving, and I believe that there's a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing. But there is something more in the faith which is reckoned as righteous. Paul speaks of a kind of faith 
that gives life to the dead, who calls into existence the things that are not, that on the surface don't seem to exist. And so you would be wrong if you consider that all faith is saving faith. There's faith, and then there's saving faith. There's faith that's a confidence or a trust. It's a belief about something. And then there's saving faith, redemptive faith. And so Paul, in giving this illustration of Abraham, points to the singular source of Abraham's faith. Read again in verse 17. As it is written... I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This is the reckoning of faith. In what sense is it a reckoning of faith? I want to remind you of something. Abraham's faith is in a person. It's not in a religion. It's not in Catholicism or Protestantism, Hinduism or Buddhism. It's not a series or, if you will, of assumptions or presuppositions about some sort of religious construct. Remember what I've already told you that in biblical faith, (laughs) salvation is always through a person. And it's always by grace. Biblical faith isn't simply a human idea. It's not a human scheme or remedy. Faith is faith in God. Now again, I need to remind you of something. It's not just simply belief or confidence in God. James would later write, the devil believes in God and trembles. It's not a faith in our man-made ideas about God, but rather in the revelation of God that takes place in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is God? Paul identifies God as the God who gives life to the dead and who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I want you to follow the train of thought. The Lord declares I have made you a father of many nations. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. It's a promise that God gives to Abraham that's recorded in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now you have to understand when God said that, (laughs) Abram didn't have any kids whatsoever. Can you imagine, in Genesis 17.5, it says, The Lord said, No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. You have to understand a little bit of Hebrew terminology. Avram means exalted father. Avraham means father of a great multitude. Can you imagine you're standing around, you're sitting around the campfire, and someone says, tell me your name, Abraham. Really, father of many nations. Wow, what a great name. And how many kids do you have? Well, none. Wow. There's a lot in that name that doesn't seem to be 
happening. You see, in the ancient world, obviously, people would be given names that was supposed to, in part, at least reflect something about that person or, or something about their future. You've heard me say my name, Gino. It means the cattle are all dead. That's actually not the meaning of the name. I just made that up. Gino's actually a nickname for Luigi or Giuliano in the Italian language. Abraham was born in 2165 BC in Ur of the Chaldees, some 220 miles southeast of of Baghdad. And so Paul invites us to examine the source of Abraham's remarkable faith. The source of Abraham's faith is a God who makes a specific promise and then keeps the promise. And you need to understand something. It isn't just simply in the giving of a promise and it isn't just simply in the reception of the promise. Imagine God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Does that save Abraham? No, not necessarily. Does him even believing the fact that he is going to be the father of many nations save him? Not exactly. So what exactly is happening? Abraham is going to be the father of a specific line that's going to result in the redemption and the reconciliation of all humanity. Abraham is going to become the father of Isaac, who's going to become the father of Jacob, who's going to give birth to several sons, including Judah. And Judah is going to be the progenitor of David, who is in fact going to be the progenitor of Jesus Christ the Lord. You see, it isn't just any kind of innocuous faith or ethereal faith. The source of Abraham's faith is a God who makes a specific promise and he will keep that promise. And remember, Abraham and Sarah are dead. In what sense? They're they're alive. They're having conversation with each other in Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. So what does Paul mean when he says they're dead? In the sense that they're well past the age of being able to conceive and have children. How on God's green earth can a man over a hundred years of age and a woman over 90 years of age have a son? With the flesh dead, it's going to require something supernatural. It's going to require a real God intervening in human circumstances. So we revisit the question once again. What kind of a God is God? God is a self-existent being. A spirit being. God is a God who has life in and of himself. And Paul describes God as the God who can bring dead things back to life. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she, that's Sarah, judged him, that's God, faithful who had promised. In verse 12, therefore, from one man and him. As good as dead, we're born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude 
innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So who's the source of Abraham's faith? God. God is the source of Abraham's faith and the subject of Abraham's faith. Contrary to what some people have wrongly, erroneously taught, that faith is a force or that your words are the container of the force, that that faith is just simply some sort of willpower that you generate within yourself. That is not what biblical faith is. The Bible says in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus says, you have faith in God. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so Paul says, God is the kind of God who makes dead things alive, who makes promises and keeps promises. Roy Lauren writes, quote, Christianity is the revelation of a person. Christianity is the fellowship of a person. It's not merely singing songs. It's not folding hands. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, unquote. He's quoting John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. Jesus defines eternal life not in terms of living forever, but in loving forever and being loved forever by a person. So what does this mean for you and me? The kind of God who takes dead things and makes them alive. That includes people who are dead in trespasses and sins. That includes people who are dead apart from God, apart from Christ, distant, detached. This includes people who live their lives and they go, there's something wrong with me. There's something dead inside of me. There's something lost that needs to be brought back to life. And so Paul talks about the basis of faith. Look what it says in verse verse 18. The sustaining strength for Abraham's faith is the basis of faith in verse 18. Who? That's God. Contrary to hope. In hope believed. That is, Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Here's what Paul is doing. He's inviting us to consider Abraham's faith. To marvel and wonder at a man who was given a promise by God. Abraham was given a promise that he's going to be the father of many nations. A promise that seems utterly disconnected from reality. Utterly disconnected from his circumstances. Remember, God is giving a promise to a person who in and of himself cannot have children. That's part of the point. How can an old man, and pardon me, an old woman... Conceive and give birth to a child. The expression 
contrary to hope, in hope believed, means that Abraham was past the point of hope, beyond all human help, without any possibility of having a son. I'm trying to think of of things that would make sense to you. Imagine a person has a vasectomy. And the person has been given a... Is it possible that a vasectomy can be reversed? Yeah. Is it possible for Abraham to have children? It is not possible. Why? Because according to the text, he is past the point of reproductive possibilities. Abraham must believe God for that which is impossible. Abraham must trust God for something that no human resource will ever be able to provide. That becomes part of the point of the faith. Abraham must believe in in a God who does that which is impossible, and Abraham must trust a God for something that is beyond human remedy. What does that have to do with you? Because it invites you to believe in a God who's able to do the impossible. To trust a God who can provide something that you can't provide for yourself. And now we're back to what your problem is. And what my problem is, the problem of sin, the problem of rebellion, the problem of offense. You see, the Bible says that our sin has separated us from God. That our sin is a real problem, a huge difficulty. And if any of us or all of us are ever going to be able to experience friendship and fellowship and relationship with God, the issue of sin has to be fully and finally and forever settled. The Bible promises that a human being who will place their trust and their confidence in what God has done in Christ will experience forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Abraham believes a promise and he gives glory to God and then he receives the blessing. Abraham believes not only in God, but he believes in what God has said. And Abraham's faith is rooted and grounded in the person of God, but also in the promise made by God according to the word of God. And that's part of the point that Paul is making. There is a God who makes a promise. In his word, this is the basis of saving faith. The measure of a person's faith is the measure of their belief in God and then in what God says, the word of God. So the person who says, I believe in God, isn't that enough? The right response is, it's good that you believe in God, but what kind of a God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who keeps his promises? What kind of a God is God? Is this the self-existent God who's revealed in the Bible? Someone once said that God is that being whom once you have conceived of the greatest possible being that you can possibly conceive of, that's God. A God in whom there is no greater conception. But there are people who are limited in their imagination and limited in their conception. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the God who is the true and living God isn't just simply the God 
of the greatest God that you might conceive of him. God isn't simply whatever higher power you conceive him to be. Well, using that definition, you could say, is he a doorknob? No, no one in their right mind thinks of God that way. They think of a God who created everything and everyone. A self-existent God who's all-powerful. What kind of a God is God? In his attributes. In his existence. Roy Lauren again writes, Outside of the realm of the Bible, faith is only a presumption and conviction is only a conjecture, unquote. Outside of the Bible, faith lacks in its definition and efficacy. Let me put it to you this way. Faith believes the word of God for what it cannot see and is rewarded by seeing what it believes. In our culture and society, seeing is believing. In the Bible, believing is seeing. Believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then he gives the consideration of faith. Look at verses 19 and 20. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Do you understand what you're reading? Abraham did not consider his own body already dead. Remember, in what sense? In the sense of reproductive capacity. The key is the expression, did not consider. Look closely at that expression. Kata, noeo. Did not consider. It means To fix your mind or fix your attention or to fix your considerations. Paul is in effect saying, Abraham did not give in to the thought that such things are possible. In other words, God has made a promise. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham goes, I'm an old dude with an old wife. But rather, in order for God's promises to come true, God himself is going to have to show up. God himself is going to have to do that something that is necessary. Again, what does this have to do with you? And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Again, what is the source of Abraham's faith? God. What is the strength of Abraham's faith? It's rooted and grounded in God's abilities. The thing that you need to think about is the difficulty and the circumstance. Real faith doesn't ignore problems or difficulties. Real faith magnifies a God and glorifies a God and then gives honor and praise to a God who can overcome the difficulties. In what sense? For the person who says, I wonder if God could save someone like me. I wonder if God could forgive someone like me. I wonder if God can overcome my skepticism. I'm wondering if God can overcome 
my circumstances and help me believe the truth. And so Abraham remains convinced in the promise. Now again, think about it. What is Abraham's difficult circumstance? He's physiologically incapable of having children. What is your circumstance? What is the difficulty that you face? In verse 20, he says, he did not equivocate or waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham remained convinced of God's promise. The word he did not waver is an interesting word in the original language. It's composed of a Greek word that's a compound word, dia, which means to divide, and krino, which means judgment. And so diakrino means to divide the judgment. Here, it's translated, he doesn't waver, but to divide the judgment means to vacillate. It means to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth concerning a judgment. It's like the person who goes, I believe there's a God. Well, maybe there's not a God. Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. It's the person who's going back and forth and back and forth. What kind of a God is God? Is he the kind of God that's revealed in the Bible? Is he the kind of God who has the capability of communicating and making promises? What kind of a God is God? I wonder if I even believe in him. I wonder if he's even real. And so what it's saying is he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Abraham knew that he knew that he knew that God had spoken to him. And he knew that he knew that he knew that God had made a promise. And he knew that he knew that he knew that he was going to fulfill that promise. This is Rosh Hashanah. Jews all over the world celebrate the Jewish New Year. And typically on this Jewish New Year, when Jewish people gather together, for many of them, observant Jews will turn in their Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, to the very familiar story of the man named Abraham, who God says to Abraham, take your son now, your only son, whom you love. It's the first mention of love in the Bible. It's the love of a father for his son. He says, take your son, your only son, to the mountain that I'm going to show you. And according to the account in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham makes his way to Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount area of Jerusalem. And he is going to offer his son Abraham as a sacrifice. What's going through Abraham's mind? Remember, Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the one who God promised. And he comes into the world in a world that he is unimaginable. He is physiologically incapable of having a son. But now he has a son. And God is asking him to sacrifice his one and only son whom he loves. And according to the Bible, Abraham believed God. 
that if for whatever reason he has to go through with the sacrifice in order for the promise to be true, that God himself is going to have to bring his son back to life in order to make the dream come true, in order to make the promise come true. Why is this important for you? Because if you've ever wondered, in order for the truth about Christianity to be real in my life, God is going to have to make sure that my own heart and my own circumstances experience a redemption, a coming back to life. Abraham is in a difficult circumstance. But so is every unbeliever who has ever come to God in Christ. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. And they're going to have to believe in the kind of God that brings dead people back to life. And so Abraham doesn't waver in the promise through unbelief. How does he strengthen his faith? Look what it says. Even though it doesn't seem like a whole lot perhaps to some of you. In verse 20 it says, giving glory to God. Why is this, again, important for me and for you? How do we strengthen our faith? In part, by giving glory to God. What does it mean to give glory to God? Remember what that word glory means. It's the sum and the substitute, or excuse me, it's the sum and the substance of all of the attributes that constitute the God who reveals himself in the Bible. When you give glory to God, what you're doing is you're admitting there is a God. He's a self-existent God. He's an all-knowing God. He's an all-loving God. He's a communicating God. He's a God who's given his son. He's a God who's provided redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and hope. What does it mean that our faith informs our life and dominates our life and changes our life? That's the kind of... Faith that Abraham has. We live in faith. We labor in faith. Faith is the difference between the ordinary human being and the extraordinary human being. Faith causes us to leave the unselfish or the selfish path, the ordinary path, and then embark on a journey with the living Lord of the universe. What happens when faith is added to mediocrity? Or what happens when faith is added to sincerity? Or what happens when faith is added to frustration? What happens when faith is added to ignorance? What happens when faith takes the place of unbelief? The possibilities become unlimited. You see, the truth is, if Jesus Christ is the Lord, then salvation is possible. And so he says the persuasion of faith. Look at verse 21. Look at it carefully. In verse 21 it says, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What will push Abraham to the position of being fully convinced? God's made a promise to him. And then God has fulfilled the promise. 
And then God has made a statement. I want you to offer your son. God intervenes in the sacrifice. How is it that Abraham is fully convinced? I'm going to suggest to you, God made a promise, and then God kept his promise. Has God ever made a promise to you? What is it that God has promised you? What is it that God has said, this is what I will do for you? Abraham was completely convinced of God's ability and God's power. And this means that Abraham believed God could overcome the difficulty of his body being dead in the reproductive capacity. In order to do that, that means that God would either have to recreate the capacity supernaturally or somehow bring something dead back to life In order to fulfill the promise, what method would he use to fulfill the promise? Listen carefully. A fake God, a make-believe God, a God of the human imagination can not make impossible things possible. Jesus is not the fiction or the figment of historical people who gathered around a campfire and said, hey, let's just let's create our own religion. Let's just make up our own religion. And what, what should we make up about our religion? Oh, let's dream about a Jesus who's born under supernatural circumstances. Let's fabricate a Christ who opens blind eyes and deaf ears. Let's create miracle stories. And then let's have him put to death. And then let's bring him back to life. I want to ask you something. Do you think people in their wildest imaginations could ever dream up the Jesus that's talked about in the New Testament? I'm going to suggest to you that it's not possible. That Jesus isn't the Fig Newton of our imagination. That he is in fact a real person. Faith is persuaded that God is able Reason argues that God can work in the natural. But faith argues that God can work and does work in a supernatural way. What does this have to do with anything? Well, faith says, if there's an almighty God, and if this almighty God can lay hold of us, then everything can be different. Someone said, quote, faith is a grasping of almighty power. The hand of man laid hold on the arm of God. The grand and blessed hour in which the things impossible to me become possible, O Lord, through thee, unquote. Let me ask you a question. Are you fully persuaded? Of the promises that God has made. And of the ability of God to fulfill his promise. Do you trust God's promises? Like Abraham. Do you trust God's word? Like Abraham. Or are you still struggling with doubt? Are you still filled with anger? Are you disappointed or fearful because of your circumstances? 
Do you remain unconvinced? But look at the effects of faith for Abraham in verse 22. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. I want you to do the math. I want you to think it through. When Paul writes, and therefore it was accounted, that means placed in the deposit to him for righteousness. Paul doesn't think this is simply an interesting historical observation, but rather it's a thrilling illustration of the miracle of salvation. Remember? It's the miracle of salvation based on belief in a person. Belief by faith. Belief in a sacrifice that's going to be made by blood. Paul understands that faith brought righteousness to Abraham. Remember the simple definition of righteousness. It means a right standing in God's eyes. So how is that? Some people pretend to spiritual life when they're in fact spiritually dead. And so if you are in fact spiritually dead, but you pretend like you're spiritually alive, can you fool people? Maybe for a season. There's a stupid movie called Weekend at Bernie's. I don't know if you've ever saw this stupid movie. It's a stupid, stupid movie about a guy who drops dead. And in order to do whatever it is that they have to do, they have to pretend like he's alive. And so what they do is they take Bernie on a weekend and they take this corpse and they put hats and sunglasses and scarves. They tie ropes to him so it makes it look like he's waving. They put a hat on him and they make a smile. He is dead. He is dead. He is dead, dead, dead. But they have to pretend that he's alive in order to pull off their hoax. And sometimes that's what people have to do who go to church. They have to pretend that they're alive when in fact on the inside they are stone cold dead. When we truly come to the end of ourselves, when we admit that we're dead, when we admit that we have no strength, when we admit that we have no resources, when we admit that we have no goodness, when we admit that there's nothing that merits our salvation, when we admit that all of our efforts to please God are useless, and then we trust wholly, completely, to the person of Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead, then something incredible happens in each and every one of our hearts. He raises you from the dead. The dead now become alive. And so look at the sacred statement of Abraham's faith in verses 23 through 25. It says in verse 23, Now it was not written, in what sense? In the scriptures. For his sake alone. God didn't codify it. The revelation of the promise wasn't just simply to make Abraham certain that he was going to have a right relationship with God. Look what it says. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him. Who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Listen to what Paul is writing. 
Why do we have a record of Abraham's biography? Why are we given so much information about Abraham? Paul argues the sacred writings in the Bible and the illustration of Abraham are given for our benefit, for your benefit, for my benefit. Paul makes this amazing claim. Abraham was made righteous by believing God's promise, the adversative, but... Remember my big book that I'm working on? Big butts in the Bible? This is one of them in verse 24. It means it's the huge contrast between what has just been written, but also for us. (laughs) Who is Paul's audience? The readers. Who is Paul's audience? Initially, it's to the Jew and Gentile who pick up Paul's epistle that was written from Corinth to the Romans. People from every background, people from every ethnicity, people from every, for every age and every circumstance. And then Paul writes, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, God, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. What is Paul preaching? Paul is preaching that we are saved the same way Abraham was saved, by faith in a promise given by God. And look in verse 24 at the end. Who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. That little sentence is going to be a subplot for the rest of the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, just let me quickly say, Christ... Jesus, look what it says, in him who raised up Jesus our Lord. Jesus is raised up in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Jesus is raised up to judge the world. Jesus is raised up to justify sinners between chapter 3 and chapter 5. Jesus is raised up to sanctify believers in chapter 6 through 8. Jesus is raised up to finish his purposes in chapter 9 verses 10 and 11. Jesus is raised up to transform the saints. Again, let me just say it quickly. Jesus is raised up to judge the world. Jesus is raised up to justify sinners. Jesus is raised up to sanctify believers. Jesus is raised up to finish his purposes. Jesus is raised up to transform the saint. But that's the rest of the book of Romans, and we'll get to that when we get to that. But we have a vocabulary alert right now. In verse 23 and 24, look what it says. That it was imputed to him in verse 23. Look at verse 24. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him. The reason why I'm having a vocabulary alert is because in Paul's language, there's a language called, that I call the language of salvation. Do you love languages? I do. I love them. I love Spanish. I love French. I love Italian. I love the Greek language. I love the Hebrew language. I'm impressed with words and language. In one sense, the Bible gives us a new vocabulary, 
of unfamiliar and sometimes strange words. Paul will use words like salvation and propitiation and justification and sanctification and redemption and adoption. And yes, even this word imputation. So in order to master a new language, we have to incorporate some of that language's vocabulary. And one of the words that we really do need to become familiar with is this word, imputation. Remember, we've already been introduced to it in chapter 4, verse 8. Remember, it says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. What does that word mean? The word impute is the act of one person adding another To another person, something either good or bad to their account. The illustration that I came up with in our culture and society is banking. If you are in big trouble and the government decides to garnish your wage and they get a court order, can they take money out of your account? Withdraw money from out of your account against your will? The answer is yes. But imagine another person, a rich uncle, grandma or grandpa, family member or friend, says to you, can you give me your bank account number? What do you want it for? I'm going to deposit $1,000 a week in there for the rest of your life. Okay, here it is. (laughs) That's what this word means. It means to withdraw from an account or to place in an account. In the Bible, there seems to be three great imputations. The first imputation is the imputation of Adam's sin upon the human race. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.24, or excuse me, 15.22, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die, and some will argue, this is pretty unjust. This is wrong. This doesn't make sense. Are you trying to tell me that because of Adam and Eve's transgression, we all have to suffer? That's exactly what I'm saying. Your account's being garnished. You have, in a negative way, had something placed into your account that you never, ever wanted. Sin. You're born into sin. You are a sinner by birth and you are a sinner by choice. And you know, someone might say, I don't like that and that's not good. And later on in the book of Romans, Paul will address this argument when he says, before you jump the gun, let me tell you the good side of this imputation. Because... Your sin is received in Adam. Guess what? Your righteousness can be received in Christ. By one man, Adam, 
all come into a place of rebellion and disobedience against God. But guess what? By one person's righteousness, everyone can be made righteous, even Jesus. And so what Jesus has done. So the second thing is the imputation of humanity's sin upon the Lord Jesus. So there's the imputation of Adam's sin upon the human race. There's the imputation of humanity's sin upon the Lord Jesus, where it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed, it says in Isaiah 53.5. Any righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, Isaiah 53.11. That he, Jesus, by the grace of God, should taste death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live in righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. So there's the imputation of Adam's sin upon the human race. There's the imputation of humanity's sin upon the Lord Jesus. And then number three, the imputation of God's righteousness upon the believing sinner. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 7, Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You know what's interesting about imputation? The imputation of Adam's sin on the human race was involuntary. No one would voluntarily accept Adam's guilt. But the second imputation was voluntary. Jesus, the good shepherd, gives his life for the sheep in John 10, 11. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And the imputation of God's righteousness on the believing sinner is also voluntary. Jesus doesn't impose his righteousness upon you. It has to be received voluntarily. And again, Abraham is the perfect example of imputation. Remember in James 2.23, And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed, same word, unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. The invitation goes out to you. The invitation is that you believe in Jesus, that you love him, and that you accept him. And then Jesus can say with a clear conscience and a straight face, you're not my enemy. You're not even my servant. You're my friend. I'm willing to make you my friend. So Abraham is an example of the imputation. David is an example of the imputation. Onesimus, the runaway slave, is an example of the imputation. Stephen, the first martyr. Paul, the apostle. At my first answer, Paul says, No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge or placed on their account or imputed. There's things that can be given to you and things that can be taken away from you. And so the offer is to give you something. 
And note the word believe. In the letter of Romans, believe has already been used in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 4, verse 3. It's going to later be used in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 10, verse 4, and way more. Wearsby writes, when a sinner believes the promise of God in the word, then the same resurrection power enters his life. He or she becomes a Christian, a child of God, as was Abraham. We must confess that we are dead and believe that Christ will make us alive and that he'll save us. And so the justification by faith, look what it says in verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus is raised in reality, in history. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. It isn't just a set of beliefs. It's a person who comes back to life. A real Jesus who dies for our offenses. Roy Lauren writes, To believe God is to behave like he wants you. To believe God is to act upon God's commands. Faith is the great challenge of the impossible. It is the daring of doing. You see, the Bible doesn't just simply invite you to believe. The Bible invites you to act on that belief based on the promise of God that if you will trust Jesus, you'll be saved. Faith sees the invisible. Faith believes the incredible. Faith receives the impossible. A new heart, a new life, and a new future. And I'm done for now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Lord, that you're willing to place in our account righteousness based on one thing and one thing alone. Our willingness to believe the truth that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. And to embrace the historical reality that a real Jesus came back to life. Because a dead Jesus can't save anyone. A dead Jesus can't forgive anyone. A dead Jesus can't reconcile anyone. And so, Lord, we once again affirm that our faith is in a person. And our confidence is in his shed blood. And our confidence is that there's nothing that we can do to merit that acceptance, forgiveness, or redemption. That just like the person who receives a check by faith must of necessity take it to the bank in order to cash it that a transaction becomes necessary to take the instrument and get all of the benefits 
And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has been holding a check in their Bible and they've never taken it to the bank. They've never cashed it. They've never received the wonderful benefits of what it means to know you and to love you. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what they would do. That they would confess their sin, their need for forgiveness, and their absolute confidence in a Savior who saves. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.